Hello, and welcome to Political Junction. I'm your host, Oscar da Silva, and on today's episode, I will be talking to Nigel Huddleston, MP for Mid Worcestershire. In the recent 2020 cabinet reshuffle, Mr. Huddleston was made Under Secretary of State for Sport, Tourism, Heritage, and the Commonwealth Games. I talked to him about his life before politics in the business sector and about his current job and his current roles in government. All this and more on today's episode of Political Junction. So, hello, Nigel. How are you today? Um, I'm fine, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've had two cups of coffee, so um, <laughs> that usually sets me up oh, uh, in perfect. the morning. Yeah. It's like the middle of the night. It's 9.35. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, firstly, I, I want to ask, uh, what, what made you actually want to become a politician? Uh, you know, um, that's a really good question. I suppose I was I was brought up um, in the in the 80s where politics was really quite vibrant with, you know, Margaret Thatcher as the prime minister and so on. Quite a divisive character. Um, but there was a lot going on. Um, and in fact, actually, just this 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 weekend, it's 40 years since the uh, start of the Falklands War. I remember that, you know, and then all the other things going on. Um, and then I did um, economics as well at, G, at uh, well, what was then O-Level, now GCSE, um, and started to understand, you know, the interlinks between politics and, you know, taxation levels and public spending. And I just found it really interesting. Um, and then when I um, did my A-Levels and then went on to university, I, I studied politics, got involved in politics, in political campaigning at university, and really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people that I met. I enjoyed the variety. And most importantly, I started to meet politicians and, and could see that they were really passionate about making a difference. Um, you know, so it wasn't just all the chatter and talk. It was actually, um, you know, having an impact. And, uh, and so it really got me excited. Now, it was a 20-year gap then before I got elected to Parliament. Um, but I've always had the interest in it um, because, you know, I, 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 it's fascinating. It's varied. Um, but most importantly, you can make a difference. And it's a really, really great, great route to making a difference. Yeah, I, I know, of course, that you were involved in the business sector first. And what made you want to want to make that transition to politics and to government? Well, I think it's always a good thing for uh, politicians to have experience outside of politics, because then you can bring something with you to Parliament. And I think the best politicians are the ones who who do bring something in. Now, it doesn't have to be business. Uh, lots of people on the labour branches, traditionally, lots of trade unions, um, lots of lawyers, lots of people with armed service experience, actually surprisingly few, to be honest, with business experience um, uh, until recently. Um, but I think it's really valuable for people to bring um, experience into Parliament. And I've got 20 something years of business experience, international business experience as well under my belt before I stood for Parliament. And I think that was the good timing. So I was old enough that I brought something with me. Uh, but also young enough that I still had a bit of energy um, uh, about me and, uh, and, and drive. Um, so I think getting into Parliament in your 40s or 50s, kind of late 30s, 40s or 50s, is often the, the kind of best point, really, because you bring some credibility. You've already got a network. Um, you've already established credibility. Um, but I say it doesn't really matter what the background is. Um, and actually now it's great that we've got huge diversity on both sides of the chamber. So I find it really interesting that, you know, we've got the postmen, the trade unionists and the nurses on our side of the chamber and the opposition have some of the great and the good and service and lady that, you know, it's, it's very, very different from how it was um, 
you know, many years ago. You can't look at somebody's background and CV now and predict which side of the chamber they're going to be on. And I think that's a good thing. Um, but, but as I say, a lot of the politicians I particularly have a lot of respect for, uh, and I do have a, a lot of respect for most politicians, but they're the ones that have come in, got a lot of experience, generally as well, interestingly, giving up that pretty well-paid, you know, job in the private sector of, um, often in order to become um, a, a politician, which itself, I think, shows dedication and commitment. Um, and, um, and, and, and then kind of really contributing and leveraging the experience they've got, um, I think is really useful. Um, so, so I actually ended up coming in, I think, about the right time. Yeah, so you'd advise a, a young person who wanted to, you know, follow in your footsteps to first try out in a, in a different sector and then later go yeah. to politics. Yeah, and, and, and whilst also keeping a foot in politics and whether that's, you know, standing for council or, um, or being involved in, in a local association or something or particularly championing a cause or something, you know, I, I, think, um, I think having that mix and that, that enthusiasm, that, that, that kind of public service commitment combined with, um, you know, often private sector, but not always experience is, is actually quite a good combo. It's really yeah. important to understand the mix of part private sector and public sector, actually, and indeed charities um, and the so-called third sector. They all play a really vital role in, um, in, in our society. Um, and actually, you know, it's good for politicians to understand um, the interlinks and, the, and, the, and, the, and, and how they all, um, they all contribute and how work, work together, actually, and, and the role, role that they all play. Um, so I think deliberately and consciously exposing yourself to multiple sectors and, and getting involved in some way of politics, broadly defined, is actually quite useful. Yeah. Uh, I know that before becoming MP of, of, of Mid-Worcestershire, you tried for Luton, South Luton, I believe. Yeah. Uh, after um, not making that one, did, did you ever want think to yourself, should I just go back to the business? Should I go back to the, to the previous job where you were head of travel at Google? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you do have to think about those things, because it's not just you as an individual, it, it, you know, these, these things hugely impact your family. When I was um, uh, standing for Luton South in the 20, um, 2010 general election, I was also working a very demanding job. I was a management consultant at the time, traveling and working abroad a lot. So every spare moment I had was spent either working, traveling or, or political campaigning, yet I had a young family um, at home. Um, yeah. You know, so so um, it, it's not easy on on an individual um, who wants to get involved in politics, but it's not easy on their family as well. Um, so when I lost having, you know, I, I think widely recognized because I was campaigning for several years before it. And then all circumstances and timing plays a big role in politics. But then there was the expenses scandal of MPs. The MP I was going to be standing against in the end decided to stand down. She only decided to do so just a few weeks before the general election. Um, because of all the scandal around it, all of these kind of um, stars and others came in and stood as well, and it all became very chaotic. So instead of being a straight Labour Conservative fight, which it normally would have been, where I think a lot of the surveying was suggesting that I would win, instead it kind of blew up, went all over the place. It was very difficult to predict, and I ended up losing by a couple of thousand votes in the end. Um, but it could easily have gone the other way, and, and I could have ended up winning probably by a few hundred votes. Um, so, so losing that uh, election was pretty um, disappointing because, you know, I deserve to win. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm no, no qualms in saying so. Um, I, I'd worked really, really hard, um, I, and, uh, and, but it just didn't work out that way. Um, you know, it, it, things, things got in the way. So I had a, a period of reflection thinking, do I really want to do this? Um, um, 
and then five years later got got elected in 2015. But I, I did resubmit to be on the candidates um, list about a year after losing in Luton um, in 2010. Um, and then there was about a two year gap where not a lot was going on because we weren't in the process of selecting candidates for the next election. But then a lot of retirement seats came up when uh, a sitting MP decided they didn't want to stand again around 2013. And I started applying for seats again then and was very lucky very quickly actually to get mid Worcestershire, um, which is, I'm originally from the East Midlands. This is in the West Midlands, but it's the kind of small town and rural area, not dissimilar in many ways from the area that I was, um, I was born and raised in Lincolnshire. So, you know, I had a bit of an affinity to the area and kind of felt like I, I knew it and I knew the kind of issues and the type of people that I'd be representing. So I was very lucky in many ways that I've, um, I'm now representing an area that, um, I mean, it's also a beautiful area of the country. So um, again, luck and timing plays its part in these things. And I was very lucky. Yeah, I think you also did an, an excellent job and I'm sure your constituency is very happy to have you. Um, <laughs> Thank you for saying so. <laughs> but um, yeah. I was also wondering, uh, what, what is your view? Because I know you've, you have a very strong business background and that can be rare to find in, in some government ministers. And I was wondering if you felt that your party over the pandemic has done enough for like high street shops and small businesses. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the biggest challenge with the pandemic is there was no playbook. None of us had faced this ever before. Um, we'd not, you know, there's been pandemics, um, uh, and, and, you know, but we're really talking 100 years ago since kind of Spanish flu post Second uh, First World War. Um, and, 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 you know, so actually, if you go back a long way in history, there is a record of actually kind of lockdowns of the economy and so on, but not in, in, in living memory. Um, and of course, the economy is very different now. So we were looking very carefully about what other countries were doing. Um, but also we were very, very um, uh, creative and, and thinking very laterally about what we should do and how we should intervene, in particular, you know, credit to the Treasury and others. But um, uh, there's never enough support and there's never enough money for all the things that everybody wants to do. But I think when you look at it, and it's somewhere in the region of £450 billion of, of government interventions during the, um, during the, 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 the pandemic crisis, yeah. um, you know, that's a pretty big level of intervention in the economy. Um, from government, um, and it was needed. Um, I always say that government should be as small as it can be, um, but as large as it needs to be. And instinctively, as a conservative, I believe that you know government should be small most of the time. But there are times where it needs to be big, um, and during course, the pandemic yeah. was one of them. And you know, so one of the sectors I oversee, you know, hospitality, leisure, tourism, um, ninety-two percent of workers were on furlough at one point during that pandemic. Tourism and hospitality and leisure alone got 35 billion pounds of that support, you know, to give you some idea. So we were intervening um, to a huge degree, um, but it was always part of the getting ready and making sure that we keep things going and ticking along in order to be there for the recovery. And the same thing with sport or arts or culture or heritage, you know, keeping these entities and institutions alive so that when the recovery comes, and we knew it would come, we just didn't know when, but when the recovery comes, they can be there and be ready to bounce back. And actually um, the economy has bounced back. So, so look, I would say, um, you know, there's always lessons learned, um, certainly in terms of, um, um, in terms of the, the disease itself, COVID, we, we know a lot now. Uh, that we didn't know when it started. Of course, um, yeah. So things will be different. But in terms of the economic support, things like furlough, various tax breaks, support mechanisms and support programmes, actually, 
I, I think in, in, in retrospect and comparing us to many other countries, we, we, did, we did quite well because quite frankly, we threw all of the rule books out and started from scratch. And I say, just to give you some idea of context, 450 billion pounds is a huge amount of money. Um, yeah. uh, one pence incremental in, in income tax, for example, raised just above 5 billion pounds. So the implications of all of that as well, and being aware that all of this needs to get paid back somehow at some point, yeah. this is not fabricated, but you know, this is, this is taxpayers' money and therefore needs to be spent carefully and respectfully because whatever we dole out now will need to have to be brought back at some point in the future in the form of taxation. That also weighs on our mind. So you can't waste money. Um, I always say there's no such thing as public money. It's the public's money. It's, it's yeah. uh, taxpayers' money. And, and we have to be really careful how it's spent. So it's very tempting to say, oh, we should have spent another 10 billion here or 30 billion there. Um, but we also consciously and deliberately need to be really careful that this is going to have an impact and it's going to be um, used used wisely um, because we've, we've got to always be respectful of taxpayers' money. Of course, I mean, hindsight is a beautiful thing, but yeah, uh, I think, yeah, you, you guys have done a, a very good job. But um, m- moving on, I, I want to ask about some of your roles as uh, Under Secretary of State for Sport, Tourism, um, Heritage and the Commonwealth Games. Uh, and I, and I yeah. wanted to start. That that is a lovely title, by the way. And I, and I <laughs> no. to start yeah, I think I've got the biggest there. title in government, actually. At the <laughs> yeah. Um, not but sure whether that's a good start, thing. I wanted to start with sport, um, and I wanted to talk about, of course, the the um, the Russian-Ukrainian war at the moment. But I wanted yep. to specifically ask you about um, how do you feel about Abramovich and the, the freezing of his assets, such as Chelsea Football Club. Yeah, well, uh, look, the, the the war in Ukraine is dominating, um, quite frankly, the whole of the country's um, thoughts at the moment. Um, we, you know, you turn on the television, look online, open a newspaper, and there's really horrific images coming there. Um, you know, we are a global player, and um, and we are respected in the world, and we need to take a stance um, uh, in, in in multiple ways, both both against Russia and making it very clear that we do not agree with what they're doing and put pressure on them, whether that's military, um, cultural, economic, um, all the pressures that we're putting on there, as well as obviously the humanitarian aid and support that we're giving uh, to to all the people impacted. Um, As as it relates to sport, very, very quickly, actually, um, we, um, I was working with the Secretary of State and others, said that sport has a role to play here because it's really visible and it's really important. And there's a lot of global sporting events where um, Russia tends to be very visible. Um, we know that Putin in particular, um, remember this is all about Putin. You know, it's not every Russian uh, here. There's a lot of decent of course, people in yeah. Russia. But, but the, the Putin regime, um, we really need to make sure they get the message. And, and Putin loves kind of wrapping himself in the Russian flag and um, jumping around on the, on the world stage, particularly in, in, uh, um, with, with Russia's sporting prowess. And of course, Belarus, uh, Belarus uh, who've Belarus, been... Um, yeah. Um, helping uh, um, Russia in this. Um, so we said, look, we, we can't have them doing this. They need to be pariahs on the world stage, and that includes sport. So very, very quickly, we worked with um, about 30 other countries. Uh, I met with um, 30-something other sports ministers um, to agree that we would, um, we would make our position very clear, which is, you know, no, no Russians competing, no Russians hosting, uh, no Russian not hosting any major events, uh, no Russians competing um, uh, uh, in, in international events, 
um, and no money uh, uh, flowing flowing to them. Um, and we've gone even beyond that, actually, to say even individuals, not just teams now, we want to get some assurance from them that they don't have ties to Putin. If they're claiming to be independent, then we want that to be meaningful. They're claiming to be independent and neutral, which means an absolute declaration, no ties, no money, no support for um, uh, for Putin. That has huge implications on global sport because Russia did play a big role. But I think it was really important we set that um, out. And then as it relates to where there's financial support um, uh, in, in the UK, then, then individuals who are sanctioned and uh, Roman Abramovich being the most high profile uh, one there, then he was sanctioned and therefore his assets are frozen. And that includes uh, Chelsea Football Club. Um, so that has had huge implications for Chelsea. Uh, they were in the process of being up for sale anyway. Um, and the government is enabling discussions about that sale to continue. And we will have to probably change the license um, that uh, that operates around the sanctions on Abramovich in order to make that happen, because we want to make sure that Putin and anybody who's supported him, um, and of course Abramovich has been sanctioned, so there are links between Abramovich and, and, and Putin, that they're the ones who are impacted, and they're the ones who have their assets frozen, and they're the ones who really feel this, whilst minimising the impact on innocent people, including, for example, Chelsea fans. But there is an impact. It has had implications. It's not business as usual. Um, um, but they've been able to continue um, um, play games, but not everybody uh, has been able to get tickets, for example, because we've got to be careful about not enabling um, further revenue um, to, uh, to flow into, uh, in, into Chelsea. Um, hopefully it's a temporary thing because the um, Chelsea FC hopefully will be sold um, probably within a matter of weeks, hopefully. Um, uh, and um, and, and we can move on, but there, there has been implications. And those implications are at, uh, abroad as well as at home. And, and again, we're all seeing this, you know, the implications of sanctions and some of the other measures on Putin have had domestic impact, most obviously on, on, on energy, but also in many other areas where we're seeing that. But, um, you know, that, that, that's, that, that's what happens um, when there's conflicts going on in the world. Um, it's not just the conflict area that's impacted. There tends to be implications around the world and the British public, I think, broadly understand that because they are so, you know, um, outraged at what's going on in Ukraine um, that they want to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukrainian people. And, um, and that means some inconvenience and consequences and financial impact at home. And broadly, I would say, I think people understand that and, and accept that because it's so important that we take this stance, inconvenient as it is for them. Um, and I think it speaks volumes about, you know, the British culture that people are willing to do that. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, for, for many families, you use the word inconvenient, but I think for, for some, in fact, it is more than an inconvenience. I know that many families are choosing between, you know, having to heat their homes or, or feed their family. And I, I know that the, the heating problem and obviously our treasury, Rishi Sunak, he's been paying, obviously trying to pay the debts of COVID. We're trying to pay the debts and we're trying to help for the um, the working class people who are really struggling with this tax rise. What do you think that your government can do to help them? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things here. Of course, some of the, the cost pressures and the inflationary pressures and the cost of living challenges were around even before um, uh, the Ukrainian crisis. So the Ukrainian crisis has exacerbated some of the issues and problems. I would say, look, there's a couple of things. Most of the British public understand that many of these things happen um, you know, because of external pressures and global, um, and, and global challenges, you know, 
this is not all a consequence of you know uh, government decision making but it is a responsibility of government to try and reduce the um the, the the harm the damage and the impact particularly on the most vulnerable as much as we can um and that, and that it speaks to some of the measures that rishi um the chancellor has, has brought in um we'll always keep an open mind as to what more can be done and the chancellor said that you know with there's, there's particularly you know as we we speak this week quite significant increases in um in fuel costs that are coming through and there may be more to come in the future so if there's a case to intervene more i'd say in particular focusing on those who are the most vulnerable the most likely to be impacted then the government has intervened and 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 will intervene and i think during the covid crisis we we've, we've shown that government is is willing to intervene as as necessary but it also goes back to the discussion we had earlier on we've got to intervene where it's um where it's most effective um and also recognize that this is still taxpayers money we're talking about if we if we dole out some additional cash on money now it has to be paid back it's not magic money it doesn't come from nowhere um so what we've got to try and avoid is is um is just pretending that we're giving money with with one hand only to take it back with another at a certain point now there's an argument to say that we can do that over time and one of the roles of government is to you know even out flows of money and the overall economic and economic um um uh, volumes by by taxing at some point and taxing lower than others that's a responsibility of government to assess those things and over a longer period of time make sure that um we um we we keep control of the uh, economy and provide support earlier on only to potentially um raise it raise um money at a later stage government can do that but we've still got to be very responsible of the volume of that so that it's um reasonable and manageable um and, and quite frankly not deceive or or um people into believing that you know um that it's 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 free money it isn't it all has to be paid back at some point um and just be honest with people that these are difficult times yeah, of course um, but as i said some of the measures uh, that are in place i think help um um you know we're always listening to arguments of where more help could um and should be uh, deployed um and the treasury um and and mp's and others are are talking to people and institutions and bodies and groups who are providing us with that information so um you know uh, let's let's not pretend these are difficult times difficult times for for pretty much everybody um but but the government um is willing to intervene and 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 uh, and has done them and, and could potentially do so even further in the future of course in the past when uh we've had issues with russia in stuff like the olympics the russian uh, athletes have performed underneath the name russian olympic committee in stuff like the 2022 world cup uh which is just coming up and uh, the next olympics in 2024 do you believe that that is going far enough to show no. Russia? What, no, what no, it, it it isn't. No, um, it, because they're transparently linked still to the to, to the to the Russian state. So, um, so that's not the case. And and in fact, actually, that very example happened in the Winter Olympics, where um, and and we said, look, no, they they can't compete as as pretending to be neutral when it's very clear that they're not. And also on a human level, think about the other athletes who are competing with these guys. And in particular, the Ukrainian athletes who are competing uh, potentially with these guys, um, and their views and opinions really matter. Um, and uh, and I think when the I think when the Ukrainian athletes arrived at the um, at the Winter Olympic Village, it, that really changed things as well, uh, because I think there was a recognition that we we cannot put these people in a position of having to potentially share a pedestal um, yeah. with um, uh, with, uh, with with Russians or Belarus uh, Belarusians. So. Um, that was just unacceptable. So we've taken a pretty firm stance there. That's 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 not that's not good enough. You know, 
pretending to be neutral is not good enough. You actually yeah. have to be neutral. Hence also, as I said, the requirement that we're putting on individuals. If you're saying you're neutral, fine, but it needs to be meaningful. So, you know, you need to make a statement to that effect. Yeah, um, so, so what would be the process if I was a Russian or Belarusian so if you, uh, Olympian? If, you, if you're competing in, a, in, in an event in the UK, for example, um, then we expect the organizers of the event or the, or the uh, global industry body or the um, UK industry body to require that that individual um, signs a, a statement saying uh, that they're neutral and that that means that they are not receiving money and are not supported <laughs> of the Putin, um, uh, Putin regime um, and their yeah. actions in, in Ukraine. Um, now, we can't compel them uh, to do that. We're asking them to do that. But actually, there's a fair degree of, um, of, of support for those moves. And in fact, many are going further by outright banning uh, Russian and Belarusian um, athletes. That's fine as well. Um, so, um, you know, uh, it, and also this goes beyond just the athletes, it also goes to the coaches and some of the other support staff as well, because they can course, have yeah. quite big entourages sometimes. So it's pretty tough. Um, but the reality is, you know, the message could not be clearer. I mean, just turn on your TV screen and see the horror of Ukraine at the moment. We have to take a stance that does need to extend to cultural and sporting uh, events. And, um, and, uh, and I think most people understand it um and uh yeah. you know it's all part of building the pressure on um on 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 the putin regime yeah i mean i think that perhaps taking those those harsh but perhaps fair stances might help bring this war to a to a quicker end yeah and it's uh, you know we've it, sports done so in the past i know a lot of people say you shouldn't miss mix sport and politics <laughs> this is not politics this is not a debate about the level of taxation nor you know, a new road building program. This is the invasion of a sovereign country in which civilians are being killed. This is this is not sport and politics. This is this is a you know a humanitarian you know crisis basically caused by the actions of one country, um, you know, who has illegally invaded uh, another. This is this is a very very different set of circumstances to the normal debates about mixing sport and politics. And I have to say, sport generally recognises that, and sports really led the way actually. And in fact, the sports governing bodies, particularly the UK sports governing bodies, have been really impressive at leading the global governing bodies to say, look, we need to take action here. We can't tolerate this. Um, things things need to move, and they've taken action and and they've done the right thing. I think it's going to be quite a while before. Uh, Russia and Belarus uh, are let back on the world stage here. They've got a lot, a lot to do before that happens. What do you think, uh, for example, if they withdraw from Ukraine and there is a peace deal that's currently being negotiated, uh, and if, if that does occur and they do withdraw, how would you feel about letting them back into sporting events? Would you do it immediately or would you want a break? Well, again, uh, the, the things that the government can do and then there's things that the individual sporting bodies can do. But I would say at the moment, there is not much tolerance to even, um, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that Russia and Belarus need to do before we even start thinking about those conversations. So we're a long way, a long way off. Um, it that, certainly uh, is uh, far at down the moment. road, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we'll see. But, you know, um, we, we all want this to be settled. Um, uh, the... Um, you know, the Ukrainian president has said he's willing to, to talk. They want to, of course, yeah. um, they want to resolve this. I think we would all welcome uh, steps towards peace. And then, but only then, uh, can we start talking about um, removal of some of the sanctions. Um, uh, but there's a lot, there's a lot that Russia and Belarus need to do before we even get to that point. Um, I'm afraid I'd better run actually uh, in a second. Have you got everything okay. that you need or is there another final burning question? 
Yeah. Uh, just one final one, if you want. Okay. Sure. I was going to ask, uh, of course, as you are uh, Minister for Tourism as well, how do you think that COVID-19 has affected the tourism industry? And to what extent have staycations in the UK supported this industry? Yeah, well, um, the, the three key parts of the tourism economy, um, it's uh, inbound, you know, foreign visitors coming into the UK, um, outbound, Brits going overseas, and then the domestic market, Brits staying in Britain. And uh, of course, because the planes were on the ground and there wasn't much international travel and there were so many restri restrictions, then both inbound and outbound um, were really, um, you know, pretty much you know, non-existent for a, for a period of time. Of course, yeah. Um, and that, that immediately then meant that people who um, were in the UK um, and, and once we were able to travel and even domestic travel and domestic tourism, remember, was, was non-existent for a while when there was lockdown, um, then uh, there's been a, a, a strong, um, strong demand for domestic tourism. Um, now, that will change um, as people can travel more, but whereas we'll also lose Brits overseas, it does mean that overseas visitors will be able to come to the UK again. We're starting to see that um, as well, we're, in particular the US and other uh, markets are now coming back. So we're getting that inbound tourism as well. Um, but it's not the same numbers as it was previously. Um, and it's going to take a while for that to recover, um, probably a couple of years. Um, and in particular, the cities, which also rely on business travel and conferences and events and all of those kind of things, have taken a real hit. Um, but our domestic tourism has been pretty strong. Um, it's shown itself to be incredibly resilient. And actually, a lot of people who haven't had a British holiday in a while um, have had a pretty good experience over the last couple of years. And they go, yeah. oh, wow, this is actually quite nice. You know, you can see great things in the UK because um, not only do we have the most fabulous scenery and heritage institutions and art and culture and all of those kind of things. Um, we've also now really come on leaps and bounds in things like food um, yeah. and food and beverage and food tourism. So we've got a lot to offer. Um, you know, we can't always offer the best weather in the world. Uh, there's a reason why we've got these lovely yeah. green fields. Um, and uh, which people do come from around the world to see. Uh, um, so, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, I think we've got a lot to offer. And so one thing that I'm also seeing, which is somewhat heartening, is people may disappear back to the Med this summer, but they'll have a shoulder season holiday in the UK because they enjoyed it um, last year as well. And that's a good Absolutely, thing. We need to kind yeah. of bring out the shoulders and, uh, uh, and make sure that we don't just have that peak tourism season, but try and make sure that um, we reduce the seasonality and people have a British holiday throughout the year. And, and actually, that's one of the things that seems to have been happening from COVID. People who haven't had a British holiday in a while generally had a pretty good experience and are Absolutely. now more willing than they were before to do so again. So I'm pretty optimistic about the UK economy. We've got to work as well to make sure we get those inbound tourists because the, whole, the rest of the world is opening up as well now. And yeah. they all want these overseas visitors as well. So we've got to market ourselves internationally and push ourselves internationally. Um, uh, and, and we're doing that. Um, so, so actually, it's shown itself to be a pretty robust sector been hit really hard um the, the support measures in particular furlough really helped um but there's a long way to go still um in the recovery yep. of course well thank you so much nigel huddleston uh for this wonderful thank interview thank you for talking to me today and i will see you soon i'm sure or maybe not excellent i'm, not. I'm sure we'll speak again <laughs>